0: I get to share with you today a pretty sacred space to me which is where I'm standing right up here because when I came to Elam as a 17-year-old, you know, I wanted to be a doctor and I had all my own plans and it was basically in this space right here after chapel times that I gave my whole heart to the Lord. You know, my, my tears were on the same carpet and my knees were on the same carpet I'd look up at that same map, and uh, I'd say, Lord, wherever you want me to go, I'll go, and wherever you want me to do, I'll do. And getting to be here with you guys in this place I feel like is special and I think appropriate a little bit for what I want to share with you today. You know, it was in this space during those moments that I was forged and formed into who God called me to be. You know, surrendering my plans for the future, surrendering girls that I liked, surrendering, you know, the places I didn't want to go. And in that, something was formed in me and something was forged in me that brought me into those next steps in my life. And what I want to share with you today is this, the lost secret of world changers. The thing that from ages past, those who have advanced the kingdom of God on this earth have understood And had at the center of their heart. And it has enabled them and given them the strength that they needed to contend for God's kingdom being brought down to earth. Let's open up to the book of Acts, chapter 20. Your Bible and your phone. And I want to kind of set where the scripture is coming that we're gonna read. What's happening is Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem, and he feels that God has told him to get back to Jerusalem by the Feast of Pentecost time period. And so he's traveling back, and he's going to go by what's now the country of Turkey. And as he's traveling through, he wants to see some of his friends from Ephesus. And this city of Ephesus was where Paul had spent most of his ministry, and so it's where he had kind of planted himself, and so he wants to see these people that he's raised up and invested his life into, but he doesn't actually want to stop in the city of Ephesus because he knows if he actually goes to the city of Ephesus, there's hundreds of people that know him there, he's going to get stuck there, he's going to have to talk to everybody and all this stuff, and so he's trying to make a plan for how to do this, and so what he decides is he's going to go a little bit further down the coast, and he's going to stop in this little city called Miletus. And then he sends a letter ahead of him to tell all the elders of the church at Ephesus to come down and meet him in Miletus. And it's really quite amazing the commitment of these people to come meet him because it's a 60-mile walk they have to do from Ephesus down to Miletus. But these guys love Paul, and so all of them gather together, and they travel together. The 60 miles down to the city of Miletus, Paul comes on board in his ship, and he has one day with these dear friends before he has to go on to Jerusalem. And in Paul's mind as he's talking to them, he believes in all his heart he's never going to see these dear friends again. And so he gathers them together and he begins to share with them the deepest things from his heart. And as he's sharing that, he says something, he begins to unfold this lost secret of world changers. Look with me in verse 22, Acts 20, 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. I want to read those few verses again in a different translation just to capture the idea. Verse 22. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, So that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. There's this secret we see begin to flow from the life of Paul as he speaks these words in this passage. And we see it echo from his life as we watch him live out in the New Testament. And as we look all throughout history at the women and men who have shaken nations and contended for revival and hunger to see God's kingdom brought to earth, you see this thing laced through their life. The secret is simply this. You must be all in. All in. All in for Jesus and all in for the task he entrusts to you. You see, there's an enormous difference between all in and almost all in. And the reality is, it's the difference between powerlessness and shaking nations. And it's very easy as a believer to step up to the line and get to almost all in and say, that's good enough. I turn around and look behind me at the others in my youth group or the others I grew up with, and I'm like, I'm I'm like miles ahead of them. And I stop at that line, and we stop just short of the threshold to receive all that God wants to do in and all he wants to do through your life. Paul lived his life with an attitude of all in. He did not hold anything back. From the day he met the Lord on the road to Damascus, he determined that he was going to lay down everything for Jesus. He would face any persecution, he would face any trial, any difficulty, he was going to give up his past, he was going to give up his present, he was going to give up his plans, and he was going to give up his future. He offered unto the Lord everything, and Jesus used him to change the world. He started churches across five different nations, dozens of churches planted, and he laid the foundation for the church that would change that whole part of Asia, Europe, and eventually the world. And it was because as a young man, when he met Christ, he stepped over the line and said, I'm not almost all in, I am all in. I was reading recently about a, a man named Robert Germain Thomas. He'd grown up in, in Wales, you know, as a part of England there. And as he was growing up in, in, in Wales in that region, as a young man, his dad was a pastor. And growing up as a teenager, he kind of resented that a little bit and didn't really want to be defined by his dad being a pastor and all these different things. But as a 17-year-old, he made a choice that he was going to give his life fully to Christ. He preached his first sermon when he was 17, and he began to prepare himself to be used by God on the earth. So five years later, after he's done some training and preparation like you guys are doing right now, he finds himself with his brand-new bride on a boat to China. Like, they literally got married, and their honeymoon was a boat ride to China. And so they're traveling into China together on this boat ride, and they get settled in Shanghai and get set up, and he's got a heart to see the Chinese reached with the gospel, and he's preparing and studying Chinese. And they find out a month after they arrive that his wife is pregnant with their first baby. So they're excited and joyful, and everything's great and all this kind of stuff. And three months into the pregnancy, while he's away on a trip, she has a miscarriage. And in that time of what's happened with medical care, in the process of the miscarriage, his wife dies as well. And so Robert gets back and is just broken, completely broken. His brand new wife that he's loved with, and he's, right as he's stepping into the mission of God, his brand new wife is taken away from him, he's grieving, and he, he's just broken inside. And so he quits being a missionary, quits the missions agency he's working with, and he gotten pretty good at the language even in that short period of time, and he moves up to Beijing and he begins to just work as a customs worker in Beijing, translating. And over the next year, he's just grieving up there. And inside, there is a wrestling that's happening. God, I don't understand why you put me through this. And why you took my wife and my baby from me. And he's wrestling with who God is and what's going on. But there's a wrestling that's in his heart is am. I really all in. I said it as a 17-year-old, but now I'm facing consequences, and I'm wondering if there actually is a line there after all where I say, Jesus, this far and no farther. And over a year, he's just wrestling with this and wrestling with this, and God's working in his heart, and finally he's visiting a missionary friend who's up there in Beijing with him, and as he goes in, he meets these two Koreans sneak into the missionary's house at night. At this time, Korea was a completely closed nation. No foreigner was even allowed to step foot on the soil or they would kill you immediately. No trading, nothing at all. And he meets these two Koreans and they're wearing cross necklaces. And he finds out that somehow in their travels, a Catholic priest had shared with them about Jesus and they'd given their life to Jesus. They'd never even seen a Bible because there was no Bible in Korean or anything like that. And he just, all of a sudden, the burden of God comes on him and he said, I said it when I was a young man. I will give you all of me. And so he began to devote his life to seeing the gospel brought to the Korean people. So he was able to take a trip and kind of be on a boat just off the shore, and they'd come down the waves, and Koreans would come out, and he would give them Bibles as they started to translate the scriptures and gospel tracts and things like this, and the gospel began to very spread, but then even that got resisted, and he had to leave, and finally found a way, and, 1866, to get back in, there was an American vessel that was going to try to open up trade with Korea and was going in. And so he gets on this vessel, he's going to be a translator for it, and he wants to somehow see the door open for the gospel to come into Korea. And so he travels in on this boat, and as they're coming in, they get to Pyongyang, which is the capital of North Korea today, and the boat gets stuck in a sandbar. And the Koreans see this as their opportunity because they're not supposed to be trading there or doing anything, and the Koreans from that area begin to attack the ship. And so they're attacking the ship and they're firing guns and their swords and this huge battle erupts between the army guys around the ship. But Robert doesn't want any of this. And he just wants the gospel to get to the Koreans. And so the observers who were there tell the story of how he jumps off the ship into the waves and he's got his arms full of all the different Chinese Bibles that he brought into him. And he just begins running on the beach saying, Jesus, Jesus, in Korean, and handing Bibles to every person he can find. And this very last Bible he handed to someone and that man had a sword in his hand and he stabbed him right through. And Robert fell there on the beach, giving his life that the gospel would be brought to Korea. No one really knew what would come of that because Korea was completely closed. And so 24 years later, Robert Moffat, the first missionary to come full-time into Korea, is allowed into the country. And as he enters into Korea, he finds this bizarre thing in Pyongyang. He finds that there's already a church there. And he begins inspecting and trying to ask questions and finding out what's happening. And he finds that of the people that day, many had received these Bibles. And one of the government officials had actually ripped all the pages out of the Bible and wallpapered the inside of his house with it. And people began to go and visit because this guy was so influential and they would just read the scripture and as they would read the scriptures, people just started giving their lives to Christ. And this government official gave his life to Christ. A young boy who saw him murdered on the beach gave his life to Christ. The guy who actually killed him, he and both his sons gave their lives to Christ. And this church begins to be birthed in Pyongyang in in North Korea. And the church begins to grow and grow and grow. And in 1907, 30 years afterwards, their revival comes to that region. The gospel explodes across Korea, goes into China from there, impacts China, impacts that whole region. And now today, there's 12 million believers in Korea. And South Korea, when it was impacted by that, catch this, has sent out more missionaries than any nation except for America. They're impacting the whole world from one man who crossed over the line and said, what I said as a 17 year old I'm putting to practice into my life today, I'm all in. I'm not holding anything back. I'm not keeping anything for myself. There is no line that I say to you, Jesus, up this far but no further. There's no lines in my life. I'm all in. What is that all in choice exactly? You know, Paul says it like this in that passage. I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. The all-in choice is the decision to say that there, I have been given a race and I have been given a task and nothing is worth more to me than those two things that my own life itself is worthless to me compared to me stepping in and receiving the fullness of what God has for me in those areas. What do you mean a race and a task? What's he, what's he talking about? When Paul talks about a race in the scripture, he's talking about this upward call that we have to Christ. It's that that that, that race to chase after Jesus and to, to know him and to, and to be apprehended by him and to fall into love with him. And there's a race that each one of you have been called to that your life would be about nothing else except chasing after him and knowing him and loving in him and falling for him and giving your entire life for him. And Paul said this is the race, the lean, the striving, the... The pressing forward that we have in our lives is this race. But it's interesting. He says, I've been given a race and I've been given a task the task of testifying to God's grace. And for each of us as believers, you have been granted by Jesus a race and a task. You yourself, have a first calling to pursue and lean in and chase after him and know him with everything you have. But you've been given a task too, a task to testify to God's grace in your life. And Paul said of himself, my life is worth nothing to me. My only aim is that I might finish that race and I might complete that task and the lost secret of world changers is this. They decide early on that in their life, it will be worth, their life will not be worth as much to them as the race and the task. Let me say that again. They decide early on that their life will not be worth as much to them as the race and the task. Recently, we were in our house, and my little daughter, Maya, who's nine, she, she came up to my wife and I, and we were about setting the table for dinner, and she said, I guess you don't, I, I bet you guys don't know where I want to be a missionary to. I said, okay, never played this game before. Um, you know, we knew she'd watched a show about a missionary to India, so we thought, like, it might, might be India. She was inspired by that. And, and so we, we, my wife and I looked at each other and said, we have a guess. It, we said, is it India? She said, no. North Korea. I said, What? She'd heard that story of Robert Jameson that I just told you, and her heart had been so moved. She said, he died to bring the gospel to North Korea. I need to make sure I bring it back again. And in that moment, you're looking at your daughter, and you have two very conflicting feelings, right? One is like, I'm so proud of you. You're a better Christian than I am. And the other part is like, no, you're not going to North Korea. But I stepped away from that, and I just was by myself, and I just began to say, here is a young woman that early on is making a decision. My life is worth less to me than finishing the race and completing the task. And I don't know if God will actually call her to North Korea or not, but if he does, I hope she's faithful, and I hope she goes, and I hope she lives a life that's not about these next 50 years, but it's about eternity. One of my heroes is someone in our Elam tradition. Her name was Anna Zeiss. And she was actually born in Germany around the year 1900. And when she was maybe around 10 or 11 years, her family moved to the States, right to the Rochester area. She lived up in Rochester during that time. that The city was booming and all kinds of great stuff. And her family kind of came into more high society. And so they had wealth and money and these different kind of things. And as a 19-year-old, she basically was on the path to a perfect life. Her family was doing great. They had plenty of money. She had just gotten engaged to a dentist. She was going to be taken care of financially for the rest of her life. Everything was going to be perfect for her. And then the Lord spoke to her about the race and the task. And as a 19-year-old, as she was praying, she felt the Lord call her one day and say, I've called you to go to China. And it just arrested her heart, and she committed her life fully to the Lord. And as a, as a 19-year-old said, I, I'm all in. So she went and she talked to her fiancé, the dentist, about it. And he said, I'm not going to China. we got our life set up all right here. Everything's perfect. She said, I have to. He called me to. And he said, I can't. And so as a 19-year-old, she made the real all-in decision. She ended her engagement. And she enrolled in a little school up in Rochester called the Elam Training Center. And four years later, she was on a boat on her way to China. She went to China in the early 1920s, and during this time, the nation of China was in absolute chaos. Japan had invaded, and so the nationalists and the communists and the Japanese are all fighting against each other. It's like there's three groups all at war through the whole time. The entire country broke down. It was just war everywhere. And so she's in this environment. She comes in and she'd be sending letters back to people in the States and Elam and things like this at this time talking about how she would step into something and she was going into these prison camps and these war camps. She writes one letter about how she got to baptize 88 men in this one prison camp that she led to Christ. This guy's doing this stuff. She writes other letters about miraculous healings that are happening in this place. And God's just using her powerfully all across this nation during this time of chaos. And during this time, the Japanese begin imprisoning and even killing a lot of the missionaries that are over there. But God intervenes on her behalf. Because she grew up in Germany, she still had a German passport. And Japan and Germany were buddies during that time. And so she's allowed to do her thing when everyone else isn't. And so World War II finally comes to an end. And and soon after, the communists take over China. And during this time, if you know your history about this at all, they, they begin to kick out all the missionaries and all the foreigners out of China. And so she was working with the Assemblies of God missions over there at the time. And so her leader came and said, hey, all missionaries have to leave. Come to Shanghai. There's one last boat getting out of the country. Come meet us there. We're going to load up our stuff, and we're going to be the last ones out. So she takes all her worldly possessions. She packs it in a trunk, and she sends it to Shanghai, and it gets placed on the boat. And she travels herself out there, and she arrives the day the boat is leaving. And so she's sitting there on the shore. The gangplank is right here going up this huge steamer that's going back to America. And her trunk, she can see it up there on the deck where it's been stored. And she looks up there and she sees all the other missionaries. And she turns and she looks and she sees the people of Shanghai. The task the Lord had entrusted to her. She looks up again at the boat, and she sees her trunk up there with every worldly possession that she has in it. She looks back at China, the inheritance that God had given her, and she just runs. She just begins to run into the streets of Shanghai, disappears, every other missionary is on the boat, every other foreigner is on their way out of China, and she just runs into China. And for the next 35 years, nobody knows what happened to Anna Zeiss. But as China began to open back up again in recent years, rumors and letters began to leak out. That in the city where she had served, somehow there was one foreigner who never left China. They called her Pastor Xi. And she had a little house, a little hut. She lived on some kind of $3 a month allowance she would got from the government there or something like that and just lived very, very poor. And she lived there in this hut. And during that time, the church was being brutally persecuted and it was not allowed to contact anyone in any other nation and everything was separated and the church was completely underground and seeming like it was going to be snuffed out. The house church leaders of that region would sneak at night into a little hut and a woman there would lay hands on them and would pray for them. I would encourage them to keep fighting and to keep going on. In the 1970s, she finally passes away, right at the time that China is beginning to open up again. And because she did not consider her life too dear to herself, because she counted the race and the task more valuable than her worldly possessions or even her own life, the church survived through that brutal period of what was happening in China and began to explode into revival. And over this last 30 years, we've seen the greatest revival in the history of the New Testament church. And there was one woman who was helping to maintain it during all that time because she had run. It takes one person who's willing to step over the line and say, I am all in. And God can take that person and shake nations with them. He can move peoples and he can touch countries. You say, well, what's the big deal? Like, like, isn't this a little extreme here? Like, you know, Paul's martyred and running back into China and getting killed in Korea. Is, is, this, what, is this what has to be? Well, not, I hope none of you get martyred. I hope none of you die in the mission field. I don't want that for myself, I don't want it for my daughter. But the all-in choice is this. It's determining and choosing in advance how all-in you are and how far you'll go. It's making the choice up front that I will not be moved. See, here's the deal. The difference between 99% and 100% in is the difference basically between being useless and useful in the hand of your master. Think of your computer or something like that. If I said, I'm just going to break off 1% of the circuit board, you can use it now. How useful is that thing? It's useless. The Lord is looking for a complete servant that is fully his. The difference between 99% and 100% is really, this is strong to say, but it's the difference between me moved by the devil or led by the spirit. What do you mean, Toby. Paul says this about the chains and hardships that are facing him in this passage. He says, these things do not move me. You see, he'd already determined in advance that nothing was going to move him off that course. He counted the cost in the beginning, saying, if I go to prison, I'm still moving forward. If they try to kill me, I'm still moving forward. If they try to take something away from me, I'm still moving forward. And so when those things were threatened or tried to come against him, he was not moved off his course. And if there is areas of my life, even just the 1% that have not been surrendered, the devil knows it is a button in my life that he can press at will to move me. If there's something I said, geez, you could have this much, I'll go this far but not farther, all the devil has to do is press that button and you're shut down. And so the difference between 99% and 100% is you're a button that the devil can press to turn off whenever he wants or you're something that he cannot stop that will move the nations. But so many of us, we come up to that line and we stop at 99%. We look back, we say, we're so much farther than them. We see the cost of going that last percent and say, I'll go this far, but no farther. You know, many of you know that feeling of having the devil have a 1% button in your life that he can press. Now, maybe it's about being willing to go overseas, maybe it's about marriage or a relationship. And you've seen yourself fall into all kinds of goofy stuff several times in your life because the devil can just threaten that area of like, oh, I might not get married, this relationship might not work out, and then he's got you. Maybe it's about the approval of others. Jesus, I'll I'll, I'll go this far, but if it makes me lose the approval of the people that are around me, if it makes me lose the approval of my parents, I will not go farther. And you know what the devil will do? He'll just find a situation where people will not approve of you. He'll bring them into the situation, and bam, you're turned off. Maybe it's about giving up certain comforts. Maybe it's about making a certain amount of money. Maybe it's about your kids. Where's the point for you where you say, Jesus, I will go this far, but no farther? Because that little place, even when 99% is surrendered to him, becomes a button for the enemy to press to turn you off whenever he wants. It was at this altar right here that I gave up my 1%. I remember sitting right here on my knees and saying, Jesus, I really want to get married. But even if I never get married, I will follow you wherever you call me to go. I can remember being back over there during a missions week and kneeling in that open area over there and looking at the map and saying, Jesus, I'm afraid to go. But I will go wherever you want me to go. And I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'm completely yours. I can remember kneeling in the front over here. I had plans for career stuff that I was going to go into and what I wanted for my life. And I remember just sitting over there and saying, Jesus, even if I never have money in the bank, if you will take care of my needs, I will follow you wherever you ask me to go. And it's in those little moments that our 1% is offered back to him. And he begins to release to us the kind of life that we've hoped for the whole time. He begins to release to us the the calling and the destiny you feel echoing in your hearts, even as you sit in these seats right now. And you wonder, how am I actually going to step into that? How am I actually going to get there? It takes the moment where you say, I'm not 99% in, I am all in. So even as we get ready to get released into break right now, I just want to have a time for us to make an offering to the Lord before we go. And the offering I want to challenge us to give him is our last 1%. I know I'm not just talking to just a typical church right now. I'm talking to incredible, gifted, called, people who have already made sacrifices, who have already gone further than the people that were around you. You're not just some goofy group of people or just some people that are kind of half-hearted in what you're doing. You are like the best of the best already. But 99% is not enough. It is in that offering of the last 1% that I receive the fullness of what he has for me, and I step into a life where I will not be moved.